Well, if you want to open your Bibles to Nehemiah, that's where we're going to start um, a series, just go through Nehemiah verse by verse, and this morning just start with the context and background. Let's see here, we're going to go ahead and read the whole first chapter. We are going to go through chapter... One a couple weeks. It's going to take us a couple weeks to get through chapter one, and it'll start to pick up the pace after that. But we'll read the whole thing just to start. Okay, Nehemiah one one. The words of Nehemiah the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened that in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa the citadel that Hanai, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you, day and night, for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned, We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Let's stop right there. And so, just because this is kind of a smaller book in the Old Testament, And we want to know the background. Why is this important? Why was this included? What what was going on at this time? And where are we kind of in the scope of redemptive history, but also in the Old Testament in general? So let's go through and just kind of start back. We'll do a brief overview. If you go back to when... Abraham was left his homeland and God had promised him a land. And, you know, it took a long time, obviously, for that to happen, that he had descendants. God promised they'd be like the stars in the sky or like the sand on the seashore, but he also told them that they would go to Egypt and be slaves. And so that happened... um, they multiplied, but then eventually, you know, they're slaves in Egypt, and 
God brought them out of Egypt, brought them into the land after 40 years in the wilderness. And as God's bringing them into the land, he, he promises them uh, blessings and cursings. You know, if you follow me, uh, I've set before you life and death, good and evil, therefore choose life. You know, this, follow me, uh, and you'll have the land, and if you don't follow me, you're going to be exiled, just like Nehemiah prayed here. And I'll read you those verses from Deuteronomy. Just This is Moses. Uh, as he wrote Deuteronomy, kind of giving you some of the verses he quoted there. So this is Deuteronomy. You don't have to turn there, but this is Deuteronomy 4. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands, that neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him, if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation, and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. So this, you know, there's actually two main views on the date of Exodus. There's an early date and a later date, and different scholars have different, different views on that. But basically, somewhere between 300 and 500 years, um, God's people live, live in Israel. And for the most part, the story is this slow descent in this pattern of they follow God, and then they rebel, and then they repent, come back to God, and God delivers them, and they do it all over again and over and over and over and over, and just this slow spiral down of following the Lord and then not following the Lord and then repenting and then following the Lord again. And so between 300 and 500 years is quite a long time to be going through that cycle, and that's throughout the Old Testament. But then there's this unified you know, Israel, but after many of those cycles, about 900 B.C., the kingdom divides. And so there's not just Israel anymore. There's northern and southern. And so that lasts for about 200 years. But then in 700, Israel's conquered. The, uh, the northern kingdom is, is conquered by Assyria. And that's the first exile. So a lot of the... A lot of the Israelites are no longer in the land. Some are left, but they're they're not a, their own country anymore, and they're not ruled by God anymore. They're ruled by another nation, just like God promised. And then, roughly 150 years or so, uh, about 600, Judah and Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, where Jerusalem is the capital, uh, falls to Babylon this time, and so. Now there's no Israel. Um, there's some Israelites left, but most of them are exiled. And what happens right before Nehemiah is in the in the mid 500 500 BC. Uh, and remember, I don't know. I'm just going to give you this. There's a lot of history here, but it's important for the context. So remember, BC is kind of like negatives. So it's like zero would be roughly around when Jesus is born. And B.C. goes backwards. So 
the lower the number, the closer it is to Jesus. So that's why we're moving. It seems like we're moving down in numbers. It's because it's like basically like you think about like negative numbers, you know. Um, anyways, so f- we're in 500, roughly 500 BC. Cyrus lets the Israelites come back to Israel and lets them rebuild the temple. And that takes a long time. They don't actually do it really quickly. It takes actually a really long time. And then in Ezra, which is right before Nehemiah, they finally complete that. And they actually have to remind a later king. And it's kind of confusing because there's like kings um, that have the same name but actually appear like twice. So uh, Artaxerxes, and then he, there's a king in between, and then he comes in, another king, named the same name, and they don't. You know, the Bible doesn't say, like, well, that's a different king or whatever. So there's, um, anyways, there's more kings after Cyrus. And they actually remind them, hey, you should look up what Cyrus declared back in these years and and remember that we're supposed to be allowed to rebuild this temple. And they do, and they look it up, and they so they let them continue on rebuilding the temple. And so the temple's completed in Ezra. And then that's, and that time there's also exiles coming back so that's the first return of exiles is cyrus not only says you can rebuild the temple but he lets them come back and so that's the kind of the context where we are in the old testament where we are in nehemiah and you see we can kind of connect this to what we talked about with sin remember what we said what is sin sin is loving the darkness more than the light so you can think about this whole cycle that Israel went through over and over and over as all these things. Sin is loving the darkness more than the light. So what they basically said was, I'm not going to follow you, God. Uh, I'm going to follow these gods of stone and wood. I don't want to do what's good. I want to do whatever I want to do. And the second, uh, we just covered this uh, a couple weeks ago, but it fits well here. The second thing is, sin is saying to God, I don't want you to reign over me. And so that's basically what they said. Basically, God, you said this, follow me to do these commandments, don't uh, worship idols. And they basically say, no, we don't want to do that. And God says, okay, if you don't want me to reign over you, I'll let somebody else reign over you. And so they come in and they do. And that happens all throughout the judges, even though at that time there's still this nation of Israel, these other people are coming and oppressing them over and over and over. And then the third thing we said about sin was, sin is not only loving the darkness more than light and saying to God, I don't want you to reign over me. Sin is like an animal crouching to devour you. And you see that. So it starts out with them uh, not wanting to follow the light that they have, not wanting God to reign over them, and it descends into being devoured. And then they finally get to where they're so devoured by their sin and by this oppression, they cry out and repent. And so that happens over and over and over again. And the picture of this is basically a physical picture of what sin is and does, right? So it's like it starts out, I just, I'm just going to go my own way, but it ends with your walls are destroyed, you're, you're in exile, you're, you're enslaved, and um, what you thought would bring life brought death. And that's really a picture of what sin is like. And so here we are in Nehemiah, and what has happened is they've got the temple rebuilt, but the walls around the city are still destroyed. And so... You hear that here at the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 1. When he hears about how, how's it going, he asks in, in Jerusalem. And in verse 3, says, the answer comes back. 
The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So what does this mean here? That Why is there this whole book kind of about basically rebuilding the walls? And how does that fit with the whole Old Testament? And also Ezra, actually, you might want to know this, but um, some in some manuscripts, Ezra and Nehemiah are combined into one book. So they're really closely related. But we're just going to go through Nehemiah to start. So what does it mean that the walls are broken down? Well, there's no stability there, right? There's People can come in and do whatever they want. There can be murders and there can be a, a stealing and basically lawlessness. And I'll read you a verse from later on in Nehemiah. We're not there yet, but it kind of gives you a feel for the context they're in. Because uh, later on we find out how far it is for Nehemiah, but it's it's like a thousand miles, okay, from where the king is ruling to where they are. And that's not as the bird flies, but, you know, they have to go around like the desert, stuff like that. So that's a rough, rough estimate. But that's a long time. It takes Nehemiah a long time to get there. And, of course, when something happens, it takes a long time for word to get back to the king and then get back. Um, and so they're, not only do they not have walls to protect themselves, the person that rules over them rules far away. And so in Nehemiah later on, you kind of see the idea of the, the state they're living in. I'll read you this verse here from Nehemiah 4. It says, When Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the wall of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry, and they plotted together to come fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So it's like, here's these group of people that hear about something, like, well, why don't we just go attack them? We'll just take our swords and we'll just go cause confusion and cause chaos and they're able to do that because there's no walls and because of this giant um, empire that they're living under that you know they can't call up uh, you know the president or in this case um, the head of Babylon and just say hey come and help us even if they could it would take you know months for them to get there and so you see what it would what it would be like to not have walls it would be oppressive. It would be um, chaos and an opportunity for sin and destruction and sorrow. Again, a good picture of sin. But you kind of get the feel of this uh, in Judges as well. I'll read you a verse from Judges. Because if we're going to understand this whole book of Nehemiah, we really have to get, why does it matter that the walls are broken down? Because that's the whole story. It's like we want, we want to rebuild these walls. There's no protection. There's no stability. There's no justice. Um, and, and Judges kind of gives a good feel of that. It says, "This listen as we read. I'm going to read you this short thing from Judges. Just listen for that descent into sin, but then also the result of um, you know, instability and injustice and oppression here. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, because of Midian the people of Israel made for themselves dens that are in the mountains and caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midians and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them, and they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come in like locusts in number, both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. 
And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So this is a previous example, but it gives you a good feel. It's like, well, what, what do you need to live on? Well, you need your food, so you go out, and at this time you plant or you have cattle. But when there's no way to protect that, there's, where do you store your grain? Well, they would hide it in caves and hope that the Midianites didn't find it because every year they would plant their crops and they would want to eat them, but then someone would come in and steal it all, and, or most of it, what they didn't find. And they would just just devour the produce of the land. And so then you spend all this year working, and it's all gone. And you want to feed your kids. And there's not food because someone comes in every year and steals the food. And so that kind of gives you a feel of what it might feel like for these small numbers of people living in Jerusalem at this time. They don't have any protection. You know, they work hard, and then what what, what happens? They, they don't have anywhere to put their food um, or... Um, somebody burns the gates so they can people can come in and come out. A modern, I'll give you two modern examples because I want you to get a feel for what this really means. Because to understand why is Nehemiah weeping here, why is this such a big deal? You really got to feel the weight of what's going on here and how terrible it really is. And Dale Ralph Davis has quite a few good commentaries on the Old Testament, and he says that one of the reasons we don't resonate with a lot of these stories in the Old Testament is we've never lived under oppression. And suffering, and so we don't know why, why are the, the, there are these stories about these um, you know judges and and they're overcoming um, these oppressive leaders and and there's you know remember Ehud Ehud comes in he's supposed to bring a tribute but instead he brings that sword and he uh, he kills you know the really fat king it's like well why is that in the Bible well it's, you got to understand um, the oppression that's going on and the Israelites were celebrating. Like, wow, we can eat the food that we grow now and feed our kids. That's huge. And so they, for them, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, but we have to have this understanding of how bad it was to really see why they pass these on and what's going on here, um, how, how happy they are that God delivered them. And so I'll give you two modern-day examples that kind of give you the feel of this. That I've got a picture on my wall. Um, it's kind of a strange picture to put on, on our wall in our kitchen, but it's a picture from when I was in India. I have a friend that is a missionary in India, lives there. Um, and when I went over there, to uh, I don't know how many years ago it was, probably eight years ago, to help out for a couple of weeks, um, I took a picture of a lady living in one of the biggest cities in the world um, in India. And she's living on the sidewalk, and she lives in a trash bag house. It's literally like just sticks and trash bags for walls. And she's, she's squatting over a fire made on the sidewalk, cooking her, her, her meal. So you can imagine, what would that feel like? You live on a sidewalk, and your wall, the security you have, is a trash bag. Right? Like any, any person, a small child could come with their fingernail and just come into your house and take when you're gone, take whatever they want. That kind of gives you a feel for what it might feel like in this in this time uh, to not have walls around your city. And there's really people today that live like that, which is, it's just it's sad. And the reason I put that up on my wall is just to remind uh, us as a family and me what where we are, you know, the blessings we have, and um, you might think how that might feel. Another story that. Uh, not modern day, but back before World War One in in Russia, I heard this story. I read this story, and it I felt like it really encompassed 
uh, kind of the feeling you might have uh, when you just want to feed your kids and and the work you you put in is just taken away and so in before world war one and in Russia, this was in like the late 1920s. Communists, um, actually, I think I think I got that backwards. I think it might be between World War One and World War Two. Um, but anyways, I don't know the exact year. But basically, there's this guy, and what they do is they farm, and but then everything they grow, they have to give away to the state, and then they redistribute it. And so this guy had six kids, and um, and so he worked so hard as this farmer that they actually decided to give him a medal. And so he, they have this big ceremony and, and he's like an uh, exemplary citizen and he's working hard and, and growing all this food for the community. And so he, they give him this award and he comes up to the you know, front to receive the award and he kind of gets carried away and he says, wow, thank you so much, but couldn't I, maybe I could get a sack of flour instead. Couldn't I do that? Couldn't I have that? He's so hungry that he gets this award, but he's wanting just a sack of flour instead. Well, what actually happens is that makes them look bad, and so they actually throw him and all his kids in prison for him saying that. Um, but it kind of gives you the feel of maybe what it would feel like for these people in Jerusalem. You know, it's like, man, I just want to live. <laughs> I just want to have some stability. I want to be able to grow and feed my kids, and I can't do that. And so it's a big deal. So what can we take from this? This is all context to trying to give you a feeling and, and build up, well, why is this book important and what does it have to say to us? Well, I got three brief things to say. Now, that's all basically background context. But today we can at least draw a few things from this text. Um, and we're going to be in, it's not all that's here in Nehemiah 1. We're going to be in here, Nehemiah 1 again next time, but uh, two weeks from now, but. The first thing I want you to notice is that God cares about every aspect of your life. God cares about every aspect of your life. God cares about suffering. He cares about oppression. God cares about every piece of who you are. Spiritual, physical, emotional, and relational. All, every piece of who you are, God cares about. And the reason this is important is you see that in Ezra, they rebuilt the temple. So they had this spiritual freedom, in a sense, like they could worship still, but their life had no stability. There was still all this injustice and um, and sin and being sinned against. And God didn't stop there, right? God didn't just deliver them spiritually, uh, give them an opportunity to know Him and to worship Him, and then that's it. It's really important for you to know that, that God cares about every aspect of your life, that the whole mission of God in the Bible isn't just just to spiritually free you. And God starts there, but he wants to transform your whole life. And he wants not just to put things right spiritually, but physically and emotionally and relationally. God wants to fix it all. You know, the name Nehemiah, this is important, means God comforts or God has comforted. And that's really what this book is about, is about God comforting and it's really what about the whole, what the whole Bible is about. That God is not untouched by misery, by the things that we know aren't right, by sin, and the results of sin. God's not untouched. God's not unfeeling. That we can cry out to God about 
every aspect of our life and community and country and world. I'll give you a couple of verses here. You know, you see it in this text, of course, that this is the whole basis of Nehemiah's prayer is that God cares, that God cares about the people here. And this comes out a lot of different places. I'll read you a couple of verses here. Um, one from Judges, again, it says this. Notice the same pattern of they've rejected God and there's all this difficulty. You have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will save you no more. This is God talking. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen and let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And listen to this. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. And God became impatient. It's like even though this was a result of their sin, God felt deeply this, the, their misery. And the word impatient in the Hebrew is just short soul. You've you got a short soul. You're, it, it, the reason I bring that up is it gives you a feel that it's touching God uh, to his heart, to his soul. It's not just... Um, a lot of times we think about God maybe pity, um, pitying us, like, oh, that's yeah, that's hard, that's too bad. But in my mind, pity is different than um, being moved with compassion. You know, it's like you hear about somebody going through something difficult, and you're like, oh, I feel bad for you, that's too bad. It's different to uh, have deep compassion in your heart. Um, and that really gives this idea of who God is. God deeply cares about not just certain pieces of your life, but every aspect of your life and who you are and what's going on in your life. That your misery in any area touches God's soul and God's moved with compassion. And the New Testament way that we kind of talk about this, um, you hear that phrase, moved with compassion. And uh, the, the Greek word um, for heart in this is kind of memorable because it sounds really weird. Um, I'll just tell you what it is. Splag. <laughs> sounds weird, right? Splag. It's like actually means like guts, or you know, sometimes it's translated heart, sometimes it's translated your guts, and just so sounds really like guts. Splag. Um, anyways, the reason that's important is, well, you, I'll give you one way this word is used is like when Judas. Um, in Acts one eighteen, it says that Judas acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, wickedness and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and his splag gushed out it's like his heart every, everything on the internal but that is the physical thing but it's also um, metaphorical right of your inward being and so Jesus this is about Jesus I'll read you this verse, and I'll keep that idea in your mind, but inward. Um, As Jesus drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And the Lord saw her, and he had compassion. Uh, The word is, it's moved, and it has that word, in in the word compassion is moved in your guts, splag. And 
He said to her, Do not weep. And then he came up and touched the briar, and the bear stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to thee, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. You see the picture of who God is. What is God like? God is deeply touched and moved by suffering. All types. And the, when we hear compassion, again, I kind of think of pity. Like, oh, I'm sorry for you. That's too bad. But in English, it might be more like gut-wrenching. It was gut-wrenching. Because it's like it gives the feel like he, there was an internal uh, connection, deep uh, kind of in your guts of connection of hatred towards this suffering. And that's the way God feels. Uh, it might be translated like, and the Lord saw her, and it was gut-wrenching. And he said to her, do not weep. It's like there, God feels deeply for what's going on in your life. And you've got difficult things. I mean, I, many of you, I know, have difficult things going on, whether that's spiritually, physically, emotionally, relationally, difficult things. And what one thing we can take from this verse and uh, chapter in Nehemiah is that we can go to God with that because God deeply cares about every aspect of your life. Every aspect. You, you don't have to feel like, oh, it's not, but it's not that big a deal, you know, it's it because God's really more concerned about the spiritual. Well, God is concerned about the spiritual. And that is more important than the physical. But it doesn't mean he's not deeply concerned. God is. He's deeply concerned about what's going on in your life. And we could go over. There's a lot of places that we could just go over, over and over and over this. That God being deeply moved. Whether that's in Egypt. When God sees the misery of his people. And he hears their cries. Um, or whether that's. In 1 John it says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, that's a different word for heart, by the way, um, how does God's love abide in him? I mean, that verse, it's talking about people, but think about what it's saying about God. You see someone in need and you close your heart, how could you have God's love? What does that mean? When God sees need, his heart's open, right? His heart's moved. That's what it's saying about God. And so it's like, if you have the love of God, when you see needs, your heart is moved. Your heart's open. And that's the way God is towards you and towards me. So that's the first point. The second point I want to bring out here to you is... is it's summarized well in this verse, uh, Psalm 103, 6, I'll read it to you. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. So, God doesn't just care. God comes and he begins to work. It's not just uh, this compassion. You know, I have, there's things that go on in people's lives. I have compassion, but then... I can't do anything. You know, I can pray, but I can't change your life. You know, I can't fix your emotions. I can't fix your family situation. I can't fix the situation with your kids. But God can. And God begins to work. God just doesn't stop with feeling your need in every aspect of your life. God actually is wor- works, begins to work. And we see that all over the, 
the Old Testament. I'm sure you can think of some examples. But we see here in Nehemiah. And we see later on, it talks about the reason all this begins to happen is because the gracious hand of God was on Nehemiah. And God moves in. We start out with walls broken down, people are suffering, and then God is moved and God begins to work. You know, this is a good picture of, of the new heaven and the new earth. That God wants to forgive you and free you from your sin. That's spiritual, right? But God doesn't want to stop there. God wants to change your whole life, right? God wants to not just free you from your sin in your heart, but then he wants to work out in your life, every aspect of your life, different. He wants your family situation to be changed. He wants your work situation to be, to be changed, to be more of what he created the world to be. God wants our community, our nation to be changed because he cares about every aspect. And you kind of see all these layers here in Nehemiah. That he's working on every single one of those layers, from the individual uh, who can't feed their kids, all the way up to he's working in the the leader of Babylon's heart to let Nehemiah go, and everywhere in between. And so, God is working to put these things right. God cares about us spiritually, and we see that from the rebuilding of the temple in Ezra. But God doesn't want to just stop there. God wants to put everything right. And that's what the new heaven and the new earth really is about. That you know, When we talk about the gospel, that Jesus came to die for your sins, it doesn't just stop with forgiveness. It, it stops. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't stop there. Because God wants to give you a new body and redeem the earth and put everything right how it was supposed to be. That's every part of our life. Not just the spiritual parts. God wants there to be a new king, Jesus, and the whole world to be different. And to be right. And we kind of see a little picture of that here. That the world is not right in Nehemiah for these Jews in Jerusalem. And God's putting it right. Not completely, but he's starting. And he's not just dealing with the spiritual, he's dealing with the physical too. And that's really the third point. Is that not only does God deeply feel all aspects of misery in our life. And not only does God begin to work. That God will put it right. He will. One day, um, this just is a little picture of how God works. In Nehemiah, because it's not completely right, and we'll see that as we go through this. You know, he puts it right, and then things go wrong again. Um, and it's not what he thought it would be, Nehemiah, as God works to build this wall. And but one day, God's going to put everything right. He's going to put us right spiritually, emotionally, physically, relationally. He's going to put the whole world right. There's going to be a new earth. And just like Nehemiah, it's like all these years, it was really important to go through how long this lasted because just like uh, how long it, this was messed up, in just 53 days the walls rebuilt with Nehemiah and these people. And so it's like it was messed up for so long and then God puts it right almost, not overnight, but way faster than it was wrong. And that's the way it's going to be in, in the end. It's a good picture of Judgment Day. There's going to be a new Jerusalem. And God's going to come down, Jesus, and put everything right. And it's going to be put right much faster than it took to descend. And one day, he's going to come back and everything's going to be put right. That's good news, right? Because when you're living through difficult things, whether it's, you know, like we said, all these different aspects of your life, and it's lasting a long time, it's a comfort to know God cares. 
God's working, and he's going to put it right, and he's going to put it right quick. <laughs> One day, it's going to all be right. It's not going to be this, it's this long, drawn-out process, right, of waiting on God, but then it comes fast, and God's going to put it all right. That's good news. It's a good picture, you know, Revelation um, is a good picture of this. At the end, suddenly, everything's right again. Uh, Revelation 21, you know, the, there's a new Jerusalem. No coincidence that it's a Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, right? The place where God dwells with his people and everything's right. Um, he's going to wipe away every tear from our eye. That's really encouraging. Every tear. There's not going to be any more death. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. And he, was, he who was seated on the throne, this is Revelation 21, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for it is, these words are trustworthy and true. God's going to put it all right. Not just spiritually, right? He's gonna, there's not going to be any more death and pain and sorrow. God's going to heal you totally. Every aspect of who you are that was affected by the fall is going to be healed. So how do we apply this to our lives just as we kind of conclude here? God cares about the difficult things in your life. Every, every part of your life. Even if it's sin that you got into, you got into trouble with, and it was your fault. You sinned, and this difficulty came into your life. You can still cry to God for mercy and help. Whether it's just physical pain. It could just be physical pain. That's not a result of sin. It might be just the fall. God deeply cares and is moved in his heart when he sees all these effects of the fall, the, the pain, the relational hurt, um, sickness and death. God deeply feels it. I mean, think about that. When you go to a funeral and it's like you feel like, man, this is just not right. <laughs> this is just so hard to lose somebody you love and you just feel like this, I know this is not how the world was supposed to be. It's like God feels that more. <laughs> God feels that deeper. God knows exactly how it's supposed to be and he's going to work to put it right. But I want you to think, too, not only about how God really cares about your life. Um, think about how you can pray about it. I mean, give it to God. Don't let any... I mean, there's things in your life that are really hard. Don't neglect to give those to God if they seem small things. I mean, it might even be uh, things that seem silly to the outside. You know, I remember we, uh, we had a, our stove go out. And we ordered a new stove, and it was going to be like three weeks. And then when it came in, it was all busted up. They had loaded it with a fork loader and like kind of smashed it. And so it's like, and they're like, oh, sorry about that. It'll be another four weeks. So it's like two months without a stove. It's like, man, it actually turned out pretty well because that actually happened to be the time Jack was born. So you guys were bringing us meals. I was like, wow, I'm really glad people bring us meals because um, we didn't have a stove. And so we stretched those as long as we could. <laughs> Put some of them in the freezer, you know, half of them. But anyways, it was an inconvenience um, that really every day affected us, you know, in a way. Um, and it's like, does God care about that? It's like, yeah, I can give that to God. And I can say, God, this is hard. Would you just cause this next one to come in right? <laughs> so we can, you know, use the oven again. And it could be a thousand things like that. There's nothing that you can't give to God in your life. Maybe it's emotionally. You know, you get up and you just feel down. You don't know why. Give that to God. Not only does God care, God deeply cares. 
Because that's not how it's supposed to be. Um, maybe it's a result of sin. Maybe there's something in your life where you feel like, man, the walls have fallen down around me. I don't have the protection I should have. You know, I, looking around, I, I know many of you experience physical difficulties at work, you know. I've been hit at work by people or um, yelled at. It's like, it shouldn't be like that. Um, and it's crazy how common that, that is in Kirksville. Uh, whether you're working, you know, different places, especially with people, needy people. Uh, God cares about that. And you can give that to God um, and ask for help. There's a thousand things like that. Whatever it is going on in your life, God really cares. And we don't have to feel like, well, it's not spiritual, you know, to bring this up. It, you can give it to God. He wants to hear from you. And... In a way, it is spiritual, right? I mean, it's a result of the fall. And you're longing for God to put everything right. You're basically longing for God to be king when that stuff doesn't happen anymore. And so you can give it to God. It should be a comfort to us. The other thing I want you to think about is, and this is kind of a a question that people ask uh, in the world. You know, they, they ask, well, why doesn't God put everything right? You know, if God is, God is all-powerful and God is good, why is there so much suffering in the world? Well, the answer really comes back to this idea of the, you know, that the gracious hand of God is on Nehemiah. It's grace that God doesn't put everything right like that. Why does he let the suffering go on? It's grace. Because... Many people that I talk to, they ask that, well, why doesn't God put it right? And I'll ask them a question back. Let's say God puts it right in the next 10 seconds, and he puts everything right, and every sin is punished exactly right. What would happen to you? And the reality is most of them would say, a lot of people that ask this question, well, I'm not right with God. So do you want God to put it right in 10 seconds? Or, do you, or is he being gracious to give you time to repent and to turn to him? And that's really the reason that it, the world has taken this long. God could have put everything right back when we first sinned, right? Adam and Eve in the garden. He could have put the world right right then. Real easy. Two lightning bolts. just. But God didn't. Instead, he promised a deliverer, a savior to come that would deliver us from our sins. And praise the Lord that he did. Praise the Lord that he didn't put it right you know, for me, I, I'd have to do the math. I can't remember nine, ten years ago. Praise the Lord. Or I would have been in hell, right? I wasn't right with God. What, why is it so slow? God's not too slow. God is gracious. And one day he will put it right. But he's waiting. And you see this in, in the Old Testament over and over and over to repent. He's giving people time. And it's not because he doesn't care. It's because he really, really cares. It's like watching your kids. You know, you, I'm sure you've done this as parents where it's like, you let your kids do something and you know it's going to cause pain and difficulty in the home, but it's like, it's better to let them, you know, um, whatever it is, touch the stove. Um, if, you know, it's not going to be really, really bad, you know, it's just a little hot or something like that. Or whether it's uh, you watch them and you know you're going to have to give them a spank and there's going to be tears or take away toy, but um, you're doing it because you're wanting them to learn and you give an opportunity to
to grow and repent. And that's what God is doing in this world. It's like when you do that to your kids, when you let and you see the pain that it causes and it hurts, it hurts you. In many ways, it hurts you more than it hurts them, right? Like they turn around and 10 minutes later they're fine. It's like it hurts your heart as a parent more than it hurts them. That's the way it is with God. Don't think that just because there's all this difficulty, because the walls are broken down in your life, maybe that's abuse or maybe that's just uh, the result of a fallen world, that God doesn't care. He deeply cares. And, and I, it's not wrong to say that it's, it's harder on him than it is on you, you know, that he feels it. Um, and so we can trust him. We're thankful that he's there, that he cares, that he's working, that he will put it right, but that he's slow and gracious, uh, that he gives us time to repent, and one day it'll all be put right. So it really points us to, to Christ. Um, praise the Lord that Christ came to bear every aspect of the fall, our sicknesses, our diseases, our sins, and we're thankful that he cared, um, even though it was hard. It's hard to grow up in a fallen world, but I'm thankful that I had an opportunity to repent, to turn to God, and to trust him. And that's what God's doing here in Nehemiah, throughout the whole Bible, but also in your life. Um, Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for this time together. I do pray that you'd help us as we take communion here together just to trust you and to be thankful for what you've done for us. Uh, We do pray that we would just more and more just have an experienced reality, felt reality of your care for us in every area of our life. Thank you that you've been gracious with us. Thank you that you're going to put it all right. Help us this week to trust you more, cast our burdens on you. We're thankful that you're not an unfeeling God. Um, Thankful that you heard Nehemiah's prayer here, that you hear our prayers. Amen.